All right. Um, some of you may be looking up here going like, uh, where's Tim? And uh, I don't look like Tim. You may be wondering who I am. Um, my name is Bob Blacksmith. I'm often known better for being the dad of Sarah, Rachel, Janney, and Becky McLaughlin. I'm their dad, and my wife, uh, Therese, is there with them. So we've been going here for about three years. Um, Wednesday, I got a call from Tim, and he said, Bob, you always say no to me. You always deny me. He says, you need to say yes this time. And I said, what's up? He says, well, his son had tested positive, and Kelly was feeling very bad on Wednesday morning, so he self-quarantined. So he says, uh, don't worry, you can just take over where we left off. So we're going to take over where he left off. We're going to continue on with 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and uh, we'll set it up hopefully for Tim just to continue on with us uh, next week. So uh, before we, we start, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that uh, we would be obedient to it and that your Holy Spirit would guide us in understanding it. And uh, we pray for Tim and Kelly and for all of those who are suffering with COVID right now that uh, you would just um, heal them. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So uh, Tim usually starts off with a little bit of a review, and we're going to do that. But before we do some review, I wanted to go over a little bit of an um, overview of First Peter. I came across this in, a, uh, in one of my books. It's uh, by Red, Ray Stedman. And I thought he did a really good job of dividing the book of First Peter into three parts. And it's in your handouts there. And uh, hopefully you can fill in the blanks, or at least you can follow along with it. Um, the first part of First Peter, it talks about our salvation and our sanctification as believers. And to be specific, it talks about being holy. It talks about uh, loving one another. It talks about having an insatiable desire for the uh, spiritual milk, which is the word, and uh, to abstain from sinful desires. So salvation and sanctification is that first part that gets us. And then the next segment, the next part, it talks about our submission as believers. We see it submit to government authorities, submit to um, one another, submit to your husband, love your wives, wives, submit to your husband, slaves to your masters. There's all this submission, but the, the premise is this unity of the body. And uh, the submission part is that, that, that center part. And then the last part is our suffering as believers. It's uh, what, what Peter's really setting us up for is because things can get difficult, things can get hard. Um, how are we going to be able to handle it? How are we going to be able to endure, endure it? And um, he talks about Jesus being the reason we can endure it. He's our example. But he's not just our example. He's the one that gives us the ability. He's the one that gives us the power. He's the resource. So uh, let's look at a little bit of a review of what we've already covered so far. Um, chapter 2, verse 11, Tim's told us that's our kind of our thesis verse, our, the thrust of what this is all about. And he says we're living in this world as two things. What are they? We're living as aliens, strangers, exiles, and sojourners, New Americans, or the NIV and the, and the uh, ESV use those two phrases. And as aliens and strangers, how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to abstain from sinful desires. 
sinful desires. So if this is the thesis verse in 2.11, it seems kind of a little bit into the, into the, into the, into the uh, epistle there. Why did, why did Peter bury it so far in there? Do we, we have any ideas about that? I think it could be he's wanted to show what we are in Christ and about our salvation. And before he gets to the hard part of what we have to endure, he wants to make it really clear that we do, in fact, have a resource. We have a living resource. And that's where we come into those three different livings that we talked about. The, the first one being he's our living hope. He's our living <laughs> word and our living stone. There we go. Three hope, word, and stone. And then last week, I think we, we delved a little deeper into the living stone aspect. We kind of mined at that rock, if you will. And... Uh, we saw that there was four different descriptions Peter gives us as Jesus being our living stone. And something I don't think we really touched upon, it was kind of interesting, there's two of the descriptions that really are from a believer's perspective and two that are more from a unbeliever's perspective. The first one, it says that Jesus is somebody that we can build upon. He's our foundation. He's our cornerstone. But from an unbeliever's perspective, Jesus is the stone that was rejected, the rejected stone. But he's also the one that we can take comfort in that he's over us, protecting us. He's our capstone. But to the unbeliever, he's a stumbling, the stone, the stumbling stone. So those are kind of a juxtaposition of back and forth from a believer's perspective and an unbeliever's perspective. So that brings us to our passage that uh, we're going to cover this morning, First uh, uh, Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 9 and 10. Only two verses. Tim said, hey, it's just two verses. You can do that. Uh, well, yeah, it's more than just two verses because it's got a lot into it, and we're going to uh, unpack it here in a little bit. Uh, I think this is Peter's, it's one way for Peter just to give us one more thing before he gets to this um, argument about being aliens and strangers and, and how we're supposed to live. So to give some context to these two verses, I thought it'd be good to, if you flip over your handout, you'll, um, you'll see this diagram here. This is compliments of uh, the Bible Project. We, we occasionally will have some videos that Tim will play. They're usually five, six minutes long, short videos. But if you go to their web, website, thebibleproject.com, They've got some tremendous materials. All of it's free, every single bit of it. They're, they're funded by believers around the world, literally, and uh, it's just some amazing stuff. They have an overview of every book in the Bible, and one of them, of course, First Peter. And this portion of their overview, I just took it out and put it on here because it's really pretty cool how Peter has taken the images from the Old Testament that applied to the Jewish believers the, that were under the covenant, and he takes them and he almost superimposes them over the new believers that are under the new covenant as Gentile Christians. And we can go through them real quick. Um, I thought the, the first one was pretty good. Uh, P, Peter's talking in chapter 113 that you're supposed to gird up the loins, and my old New American Standard said that gird up the loins of your mind, which... It's kind of a strange picture, but, you know, these guys are supposed to gird up their loins so that they can 
uh, get away and, and, and live their new life of, apart from sin. And he's comparing it to the Exodus with Exodus 12 and describing their last night, the, Isra- uh, the children of Israel, their last night in uh, slavery and bondage. And how were they supposed to eat that meal? They're supposed to eat that meal with their belts tightened and their sandals on and their staff in their hand ready to go to leave slavery in Egypt. And basically, they go right down this list here. Um, you are the new holy people in the wilderness, so be holy. And it, it matches up nicely with Leviticus 40, uh, 11, 44, and 45. He says, I brought you out of Egypt, so be holy, because I'm holy. Peter, Peter loves the Old Testament. He loves especially Isaiah and the Psalms, and you'll see it throughout his writings. Um, third one, you can celebrate the new exodus. Even though you're in, ex- in exile, you can celebrate that, and you can celebrate the new Passover. Why? Because we have the ultimate Passover lamb in Jesus. And then that's kind of a comparison with the four chapters in Exodus 12 through 15 where it goes through all the fine details about how you're supposed to cook the lamb and about the lamb and about the blood and about who can participate in it. And I thought it was pretty interesting that one of them says you can't be a stranger. And yet Peter's kind of teasing us, I think. He's saying, you're strangers and aliens, but you get to have the Passover because of Jesus. Um, fourth one there, you are the people of the new covenant through the living word buried deep within. And that's, he actually quotes Isaiah 40 about the, the flower withering and fading away, but the word of the Lord stands forever. But there's also, I think, a hint of Jeremiah 31, specifically verse 31, where it talks about, uh, I will make a new covenant and put it within your heart. Fifth one there, you are the new temple built on a foundation of Jesus as our cornerstone and capstone. And that's talking about Isaiah 28 um, and uh, Psalm 118. And we're going to touch upon Psalm 118, I think, a little bit more. And then, of course, it takes us to the verse that we're going to cover today, um, verse, uh, verses uh, 9 and 10. So if you've got your Bibles or your, your phones there, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 2. Uh, 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim or declare the excellencies or praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So uh, Tim gave me a few questions to ask. He says, you guys would answer them. So uh, he even gave me a couple of the answers, but not all of them. So some of them we'll have to work at together. But the first question is, does anyone recognize where Peter is quoting from in the Old Testament? Any thoughts? And it's kind of a trick question, but not really. Hosea 2, exactly. The last verse of chapter 2, and that is the very end. Actually, um, verse 10 from Peter is Hosea 2, and we're going to cover that a little bit too. Any, any other thoughts? One of the ones that jumps out is Deuteronomy 7, and I'll just read it real quick. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you 
to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And one of the other ones is from Isaiah, Isaiah 43. My chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that you might declare my praise. But the passage that we're going to really focus on from the Old Testament really, I think, captures best what Peter's going with is Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. So if you want to keep your finger in your, uh, in your Bible, we'll turn back to Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus 19. I guess it's hard to put your finger in your phone app to keep it there, but you can do that. So Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The timing of this, of course, it's in chapter 19, which obviously precedes chapter 20. What's significant about chapter 20? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, exactly. So the people of Israel, they're at, the, at, at Mount Sinai, and in the next chapter, they're going to be getting the law. And I, I really can see the similarities here. Peter is basically telling them in the first part of his letter, this is who you are in God, in Christ. This is your relationship to God because of Christ. And there's going to be some things I want you to do. And there's things you need to do as believers because things are going to get difficult. That's almost exactly what's happening right at, uh, at the base of Mount Sinai. God is saying, this is who you are to me. You are my chosen people. And he goes through that, and then he says, this is how you're supposed to live your life, and gives them the law. But they're going to go through some hard times, not only in the wilderness, but also after that for years to come, in fact. So if we unpack chapter 19 of Exodus a little bit, there's, there's three things that he mentions there. He says, um, what are some, what are the, he says, you're a chosen people. You're my chosen people. But what are the three things he, he says that you are to me? Treasured possession. Treasured possession. That's, that's the first one. Exactly. Second one? Kingdom of, Kingdom of priests. Exactly. And the last one? Holy, Holy nation. Exactly the, those three. And if we flip back to First Peter... They're very close. And if you just stay there, I'll read out, and you can see how, which ones and how they match up. Uh, first one that Peter mentions is a royal priesthood. And how close is that to what we see in Exodus? Uh, the next one Peter mentions is a holy nation. And that's verbatim for what is in Exodus. And the third one, Peter says, a people belonging to God. And... I don't know if you, if, if you ever read the old King James back before we had so many of the other translations, it said a people peculiar, a peculiar people. And I always thought, well, I, I don't know if I want to be called a peculiar person, but I always think of peculiar meaning, you know, 
odd or strange. And then I thought, strange, wait a second. Peter's saying, you're strangers and you know, you're a peculiar people. But actually the word peculiar there is actually meaning that you are a unique person, that you've been procured, that you've been acquired. And of course, we've been, we're, that's what makes us God's possession. So those are some of the things that are, they're, they're similar. So where's one thing in particular, and this is one that Tim really wanted me to emphasize. He said, there's one thing in particular, though, that they sh- they, we have a difference between, and it deals with conditionality. What is the difference between the Exodus and the first Peter? In Exodus, it says something that's different than first Peter. Yes. In Exodus, he talks about speaking his word to Israel. And in First Peter, it's talking about speaking God's word to the world. That's right. That's exactly right. But, when, but there's, a, there's, there's a condition placed in the first one. What is that? Obedience. Obedience. If you do this, this, and this, then you will be my people. Is there a condition listed in First Peter? It's not there. It says, but you are. So, has the condition been removed? Yes, because of God's mercy. That's, 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 that's exactly right. But the, the, Tim's point was the condition has not been removed, but it has been met by Jesus. The condition's still there. We can't do it. It's been met because of Jesus. And that's the difference. And so often we're seeing the, 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 the if then, if then, if then. And I love how Peter almost smacks us in the face and he says, but you, you are. Because Jesus is actually the keeper of the covenant. He's the one that um, has done what is necessary and it's because of him that all the benefits and all the promises are then through him given to us. Yes. that um, you're a, a nation of priests versus in Peter where it's you're a royal priesthood. Now for us to be royal, we have to be adopted into, into the family of the king. Uh, Just really enjoy that, that like old covenant, new covenant. Right. Everybody hear that okay? Being, there's, a, there's a difference in, that, in being part of a royal priesthood, and we're going to cover the royal. That's almost one of my next questions. Is there, there's an adoption process. We just can't become kings ourselves, and that, we'll get into that. In fact, um, what's, that's, you, you almost had my notes here. That's the next question. Uh, what's the difference between a priesthood and a royal priesthood? To, to, to the Jew, he's, he's going, wait, 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 time out. Uh, we have a clear delineation between who can be a priest and who can be a king. What, what, is, that, what is that separation there? Any ideas? Let's go back to the founding of the, uh, the country of uh, Israel. There's uh, Jacob who gets his name changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and they are called the 12 tribes of Israel. Which tribe were the ones that were going to be the priests? Levites, Levitical priesthood. Uh, Then one Levite in particular, Aaron, who is a descendant of uh, Levi, 
is where we have the Aaronic Aaron's line that would be the ones that would actually serve at the altar and be the high priest for the most part. Who, who is going to be the king? Where's the, which, which son or which tribe is going to have the royal line? Judah. So in their minds, they're kind of saying like, you know, no, 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 you've got to keep these two separate. But let's go even back a little further before Israel became a nation. There was uh, this one interesting, almost shadowy figure that happened from, uh, that uh, was involved with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And who was that? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. He's covered in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, we don't know much about him, and we're reading about it, and he's, he's, he's called the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. And, of course, he can't be of the line of Levi because Levi hasn't even been born yet. But Abraham said that he gave him a tithe of all of the spoils from the battle that they had just fought. And it says that Melchizedek had, um, that he blessed him, one of the duties of a, of a priest. And in Psalm 110, David is very prophetic. And he says, the Lord sit, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies my footstool. And then he continues on, and in verse 4 he says, uh, he talks about Melchizedek. He says, you are a priest forever of the line or the order of Melchizedek. And that obviously had to make a lot of the uh, Jewish leaders in Jesus' time scratch their head and go, whoa. They never really understood that. Jesus asked them many times, what, is, what does David mean when he said this? And they, they don't know the answer. But it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition to think back about there was a time when there was an individual but then the kingdom happens there's a split uh, a separation between the duties and responsibilities but then if you go to Hebrews especially Hebrews 5 5 through 10 and Hebrews 6 20 and almost all through Hebrews 7 it's talking about Jesus's role as a high priest and and making comparisons to Melchizedek and it is Jesus who reunites that that uh, ability to be both a priest and a king. And that because of him and through him that we are part of this royal priesthood. I, I think you hit upon this when you said uh, the priesthood aspect. If, if you think back to Exodus 19, God was actually saying, I want you, Israel, to be a kingdom of priests. I mean, there wasn't really a delineation of the priesthood yet. It was only after the sin took place, and we have to get all the way to chapter 28 where God talks about how Aaron is going to be this line of priests and all the duties they have. And it's after they've rejected God at Mount Sinai that, they have, that God has to establish this, this priesthood as we see it um, throughout the Old Testament. But there's also something else missing at Mount Sinai. There's not really any priests being discussed, but there's also no kings. There's not a king. Why? Why was that? God was their king. God was supposed to be their king. And if we fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 8, what's going on there? They've had all these judges and, and uh, the people are crying out, we want a king just like all the other nations. <laughs> and Samuel, he's pretty bummed out. I mean, he's just like, oh. he goes to God and says, I, 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 yeah, I can't do it. And what's God say? He said, do what the people ask. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And so, once again, 
God's in the business, unfortunately, it seems like always being rejected by his people. And that's kind of what Peter is really pushing for here. He says, but you. But it's also a warning to us to remember not to be the people that are rejecting God. So we talk about the royal priesthood. And the next thing that's described is a holy nation. And so often when we, we hear the word holy, we think of it from the moral standpoint. And certainly there is a call for doing the right thing that Peter's talking about. But in this case, it's talking more about that separate, that unique, that sanctification. Um, and for us as believers, corporately, as the bride, as the body of Christ, to be set apart. And so, holy nation. And I think our mindset almost always comes back and says, oh, nation, uh, United States, Canada, Brazil, we think of countries instead of what, this word actually is the Greek word ethnos, ethnos. Does that sound familiar as maybe connected to another word in the English, maybe ethnicity? Ethnos is, is the description here. And it's kind of cool. I, I, I got to say, when you prepare to do a Sunday school teaching like this, you start finding things that you didn't see before. And that's probably one of the greatest joys is getting, in, get, getting to dig into the Word. And I've heard this verse before, but I never saw it quite. In fact, let's go ahead and turn to it. Um, Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And we're going to look towards the end in verses 42 and 43. And while you're turning there, I'll kind of set the, the stage. So Matthew 21, Jesus has just cleaned out the temple. Uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they basically say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus says, well, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. And Jesus asks them about the baptism of John and that was it from God or was it by man? And, of course, the Pharisees are afraid of the people. They're not going to answer it. So Jesus says, eh, I'm not going to answer your question then. But I will tell you a couple stories. So he tells them two parables. And the second parable deals with the vineyard um, that the, the robbers come and they beat up the workers and then the owner says, well, I'll send, his, send my son because they'll, they'll respect him and they kill his son. And then Jesus quotes this passage here from um, starting at verse 21, 42, chapter 21, 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The word marvelous there in the Greek is the same word that Peter uses in verse 9 about the marvelous light. And I thought that was pretty cool, but then the next part I thought was even neater. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, a ethnos. That's the same word that's being used in Peter ethnos producing its fruits. So by God's grace and mercy, you and I, we are the ethnos. We are that people. So we talked about the royal priesthood, talked about the holy nation, and the third and final one is a people of God's own possession. So what, what's the significance of possession? And one of the things I thought was interesting is um, uh, about 40 years ago, I was making fun of my dad that his arms weren't long enough anymore. And he, he said, someday you, you're going to get yours. You know, you, you'll, be, you'll understand. And sure enough, about 
20-some years ago, I had the same problem, and so now, like many of us in the room, we have to have our reading glasses. So these things, you can pick up a pair over the counter, 10 bucks, 12 bucks. But there was a pair of reading glasses that in 2008 sold for $178,000. They weren't special. They probably weren't even as good as these, but what made them special? They used to belong to Abraham Lincoln. They went on auction, and somebody says, because Abraham Lincoln, that was a possession of his, I'm going uh, to buy it, $180,000. And somebody could do him one better is uh, back in 1962, there was a dress made. It was a very expensive dress in 1962. It cost about $1,400 at the time, which was a lot of money. But then this person who had the dress, she sang a birthday song to uh, a president. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, she sang happy birthday to John F. Kennedy. And in, 2000, in 1999, that, uh, that dress went on auction and sold for $1.26 million. And then about three years ago, that person turned around and they sold it for just under $5 million. Is that dress, is that dress particularly special? Is it made out of gems and rubies and gold thread? No, it's a dress. It's probably starting to fray on the edges, but because it was owned by somebody, it was their possession that made it special. And then I have to say, I don't think I appreciate sometimes the fact that I am God's own possession. How often do we not, do we just live our, you know, daily routine and not contemplate the idea of that we are truly God's possession? That's something we should live with. Not only that we are God's possession, but probably more importantly, what it costs God to make us uh, his possession. And that's something I think we should ponder and think about every day. So application, um, what does it matter? Our, our royal status is not something that we did. It's not something we've done. As you said, it's something that God did for us. And it's something, it's not who we are, but who we are in Christ. It's because we serve King Jesus that any service we give him has become a royal uh, service. So after Peter's been telling us these things about what we are, about a, we're part of a royal priesthood, we're part of a holy nation, we're part of a people of God's own possession, then he kind of gives us our purpose. And if you look at the end of verse 9, what is that purpose? He says, you are these things, so that what? So that you can do something. What is it? So that you can proclaim, so that you can declare the praises of him. That's one of the things I think a priest is supposed to do, is to proclaim those praises, to praise God. And probably the best way to say that is worship. There's, there's three different, at least three different aspects of our, our life as part of this royal priesthood. And I would say the first one is there's this worship aspect we are supposed to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. The sacrifice has already been done by Jesus that gives us the status as part of this royal priesthood. But we, in turn, are supposed to give ourselves as a sacrifice. The office of priest, would, would, that's something they would do, is be given the sacrifices. And we say it every single Sunday at communion. What do we say? Make us a living of We say it every Sunday. And that, that's really taken from a couple verses. One of them's in Hebrews 13, 15, where it says, through him then, 
Let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips praising his name. It's probably taken a little bit from Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, King James, I urge you therefore, brother, by the mercy of God, that you'll present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual service of worship. Worship, spiritual worship. So besides there being a worship aspect, I think, secondly, there's a behavioral aspect to it. We're supposed to exhibit and daily live out these kingdom values. It's where Peter says, you know, be holy for I am holy. We're supposed to be consecrated, set apart. And I think the third aspect besides the worship, the behavioral aspect is the mission, the um, evangelism aspect, being evangelical about it. It says, right, it says right in the verse that there's a declaration of what he has done for us. And I think we in turn are supposed to then turn around and tell others what that means to them, that what he's done for me, taking me out of this darkness, he can do for you also. We who've received the mercy from God have a special role in declaring it. So I think Peter had to have Isaiah 42 in mind when he was writing up this passage. Uh, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7 He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Nations there, sometimes translated Gentiles, but it's the Greek word ethnos. A light for the ethnos. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you think those, that passage was in Peter's mind when we hear the story about what was happening to him in Acts chapter 12. What's happening to Peter in Acts chapter 12? He's sitting in prison. He's sitting in a dark prison cell in a dungeon, chained. And then suddenly there's a bright light. The chains fall off. Angel escorts him out and he's set free. How close is that to what he just, we just read in Isaiah? And... I think Charles Wesley, in the late 1600s, he wrote a hymn called And Can It Be? The third stanza, listen to this. It's, it's one we've probably sang before, but in the context of what we just read from Isaiah and, and Acts, the story there, and then what Peter is saying, it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Charles Wesley got it, and he was was definitely thinking about those passages. This is how we are supposed to live our identity as God's chosen people, those who've been given this this special purpose. It's always been that we are supposed to extend God's love to, to the many that we encounter. Um, Our identity in him should have a dramatic impact on how we behave, how we live our lives. And I think that's, that's the perfect segue of how we're going to get into this next verse, hopefully next week when Tim's teaching it, on the thesis, the story of how we are supposed to live as, as strangers and aliens. So everything we've covered so far up to this point is basically 
telling us who Jesus is. He is our, our living hope, our living word, and our living stone. And we, in turn, are part of this royal priesthood, part of this holy nation, and part of this people of God's own possession. And I think starting next week in chapter 2, verse 11, we'll get to the question of, so what are we going to do about it? How are we supposed to live it? Yes, sir. You were talking about our, we're supposed to go out and proclaim this to everyone. And I know in Matthew 5, it tells us, and this is just one that stands out to me because it was always hard in the past. I would always talk to people I knew about it, but not to just random people out there, right? And it says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Right. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Gentiles do the same. And it's like, you know, we got to, we, our mission is to go after everybody. What? Everybody we see. And, and it doesn't, we can't bring them, we can't save them. You know, but he said, you know, bring everybody to me. Right. Like you sort out the fish, Peter. That's right. It, part of the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world. You know, it's start here at home, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's one of the things I love about this church is, you know, we see the compassion over there, but this church is so mission-focused. It's, it's, it gives so much. We, we as a people of this church body give out so much to the mission, but it's just not the money. It's also we have to be willing to live it and we need to be able to share it daily. So let's see what we're doing. Let's, uh, any other questions? All right, let's go ahead and close. Jesus, thank you for being our high priest, for, for intercede, interceding for us every day, for loving us and, and help us to demonstrate and return our love for you, to show and live as we should live, to be a living sacrifice. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.